Welcome back to the Recalibrate Podcast. I'm JC. And I'm Sasha. Join us each week as we have honest conversations to normalize the human experience and help you feel less alone. Yeah, you, that's right. It's a rough world out there. <laughs> we share different ways to connect with yourself and interview heartbroken guests to expand your belief of what's possible. We're the best friends you didn't know you needed. And we love you just the way you are. Without further ado, let's laugh, cry, ruminate, and explore all of the things that you think about but haven't heard said out loud. Let's get into it. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. We are so, so excited to have you today. I was just fangirling over Sarah before I started hitting record, but I have been following Sarah for so long. The way that I would describe Sarah to you, if you've never come across her on the interwebs, is her content just feels like an absolute hug. I feel like it's my bigger sister talking to me. That is the absolute energy that you give off. So anyone that has seen you, I feel like would say the same exact thing. But for those who haven't seen you, do you want to give a little intro? Oh my god that's the nicest thing ever the like big sister vibe is exactly what i hope because i feel like we didn't get that when we were growing up in terms yeah. of like how we talk about food okay but my name is sarah i'm an intuitive eating coach <laughs> a mobility coach i essentially help people build a positive relationship with food and movement and their bodies and which seems like a really big topic to cover and it is and it's essentially when you think about intuitive eating it's your life and we talk about how to build the positive relationships in those three kind of areas because they're areas in which a huge industry has told us to always be insecure or to set these rules or to never think we're good enough. And obviously we get way more niche down into little tiny rules. But yeah, like big picture, my goal and like everything that I do, everything that I post, any program that I run, like the ultimate goal is for you to have a positive relationship with food and with movement and your body and with all of them kind of pieced together. Mm, the trifecta and you give it all, which is amazing. <laughs> you have a lot of offerings that you give. So you do like your mindful method and your intuitive eating coaching, your one-on-one -on -one coaching, you have a yoga retreat coming up, you have an app. So let's go back to the beginning. Like I know when I see you on social media, it sounds like it's just so effortless for you to speak about these things and have this easy, mindful relationship with food. But obviously that's not the case. I'm sure it has been a long, hard journey and anyone that's in this space has had a personal connection to it. What were you like starting out with this whole space and how did you get into it? I mean, even just like going back when I was growing up, like right now, and like you can see like on any social media, like I am a cis white like I live in a small body woman and growing up, I never thought about my body until I got to college. I was never told my body is bad. I was never told that I needed to not eat certain foods. I was never taught that I needed to lose weight. It really never crossed my mind. And that is such a privilege in itself. That's the privilege, right? Not being told that your body is wrong or you're wrong or bad for just existing in the body that you have. And I say that too, because obviously the message that I share sometimes doesn't I'm not the right person for people to hear it because of because of my appearance, right? And and that's also okay. As long as someone hears the message, that that's all I care about. But I essentially getting into coaching, I it started with teaching yoga. And that's how I kind of got into the wellness space. But as I started teaching yoga, I was also working through my own relationship with food. I was restricting. I was not going out to dinners with friends and with coworkers because I was nervous about how many calories it would be. Or if I was going to go out to dinner, I would work out twice just to mentally somehow make that feel appropriate, like that, that mathed out. And when I moved to New York, I was teaching at a yoga studio and one of my coworkers and fellow teachers was like, hey, I think you should look into this health coaching program. I think you would really like it. And I was just like, okay, let me go through, see if it's financially possible. And then, yeah, I'm in. So I'm I'm going through this in just a general health coaching program. And and in that moment, there was I have this one very clear, specific moment that I always talk about. And it's I was eating a salad that I'd already entered into my fitness pal. And I got like halfway through the salad as I was like watching one of the lectures. And I was like, oh, I feel full. And it was like a light bulb. I never understood what that felt because I always cleaned my plate. Regardless, didn't matter. Like the plate was getting clean, like no matter what. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, I, that, and then you realize, like, I have no idea what my body's trying to say to me. My body's probably just given up on trying to say anything to me because I refuse to listen. Um, and so as I started health coaching, a lot of the people 
that I was coaching with were wanting to lose weight. And I was like, okay, like we can work together, but I don't. And I generally was like, I don't know how to help you lose weight. I don't really know how to do that. But like, why don't we start with like your habits and your routines and your rituals and just like how you live your life? And I felt okay about that because the goals and what we were looking at in terms of progress wasn't weight loss. So I felt okay. At this point, still didn't know what intuitive eating was. And but I still remember like the feedback and the testimonials I was getting were always like, and I lost blah, 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 amount of weight. And I was just like, something doesn't sit right with me with this, but whatever. Like I'm still getting clients, so it's okay. And and, and I, I think it's funny because I, I don't have a specific memory of this is when I found out what intuitive eating was, or I saw this post or I read this article. I don't, I don't have that. And I, if it's, it seems kind of weird, but I do have a very specific memory. When I was creating the Mindful Method, we had in our Instagram, right, this is who I help. This is what it is. And I did not include weight loss in it because I didn't want to talk about weight loss. I had understood what intuitive eating was by this point, which was three years ago. And I didn't want to talk about weight loss. The program wasn't for weight loss. And the coach that I had that was helping me build this course was like, you need to put weight loss in there. That's, that's what will get people to come into your course because that's what people want. So I was like, okay, obviously they know best. So I, I put it in there. And I reached out to one of my friends who's a registered dietitian. And I was like, hey, can you come be a guest coach in my course? Like, I want you to do an extra deep dive on gentle nutrition. She was like, if your Instagram says that it's a weight loss program, I can't be associated with you. And that for me was a like, it's not a weight loss program for me. Like, it, that's not what it is. That's not what I'm teaching. And I can't, I don't want to sell it like that, right? Because like when you think about what it is and building a positive relationship, every time I like even say it's a weight loss program, it just makes me shrivel up inside. But when you talk about building a positive relationship with food, not that it's easy by any means, but it's you're stepping into this place where it's, I know that I'm working towards something that's going to help me for the rest of my life. And so obviously I took it out and she came in and coached me. That for me was a moment of, yeah this is not what I want to do. And this is what I want to do. And what I've created from there has been just like, I mean, it's been the best. And it's been a bunch of learning curves, right? Because we make mistakes as coaches and teachers and whatever. I say the wrong thing sometimes. I say the wrong thing on my coaching calls sometimes and people correct me. And they're like, mm, you should try saying it this way. This is how that made me feel. And I think that this whole process of getting to even where I am and where I want to take you know, the rest of my business, how I want to create offerings is, you know, it has all these highs and lows. And it's just like, the, it's wonderful. And it's always such a learning growth for me, learning what people need to, because sometimes, oh, I think this is like what people want to learn. And all my comments are like about this. And I'm like, oh, they want to learn about boredom eating and emotional eating, not about whatever I think is. What I'm hearing maybe is that people associate a certain internal experience with weight loss. And so they reach out to you to support them with weight loss because they think that will give them the internal experience of ease, of feeling good in their body, of loving their body, when in reality, there's a different way of attaining that internal experience. And so it's maybe not about people are associating the outcome of weight loss with that experience of loving their bodies. And you are offering, hey, there's another way to get that that isn't tied to an external metric that can change and that will change as your body changes on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, and as you age, as things happen in your life. How do you navigate that conversation of moving away from let's make weight loss the goal into let's make intuitive eating the goal? Because it's a lot about, again, that perception of what the weight loss will create for you internally. Right. I mean, we've been taught from being kids that weight loss is this blanket goal that will help everything. It will make you confident. It will make you find a relationship. It will help you get a better job. It will help you do all of this stuff. And obviously thin privilege exists, right? So like, yes. And people come into my inbox. I just had someone that was like, I want to be faster for the sport that I play. So that means I need to be leaner. That means I need to lose weight. Like, how do I balance that with intuitive eating? And then you ask the question of, well, why does being in a smaller body like equal faster? I'm not very fast, right? I, I don't like, I'm not fast. I don't train it. And so then you flip it. And in having this conversation with this person, it's like, why don't you train the thing that you want? If you want to be faster, so train, right? Forget about how much 
weight you are, how big your body is. Focus on the thing that you want. And it goes with everything else, which again, it's very easy to say because again, we've been ingrained that weight loss is the ultimate solution for anything that we want. And so it's not to say that if you're, if you want to lose weight or your first instinct is to be like, how do I lose weight? That doesn't make you a bad person. And I think sometimes as you step into the intuitive eating world, there's a little bit of shame of, well, I still want to lose weight, but I also want to do this. Can I still do intuitive eating? And yeah. Am I going to ask you to put it on the back burner for a little bit? Yes. Are we going to talk about it? Of course. Because just ignoring the fact that you are afraid of gaining weight or you want to lose weight, that doesn't solve anything. Like we, we're going to put it on the back burner a little bit while we give yourself the space to trust your body and to learn about your hunger and fullness cues and your forbidden foods and emotional eating and all of that. But ultimately, we have to talk about it and understand where you learned it, why, like what you've been told is true and start to change it because it's an ongoing thing. You can't block out the messages everywhere that we hear or that we see about your weight. So it's it's tricky because it it's hard and it's everywhere. But it's it's really changing that you want to be confident. But someone told you that you need to lose weight and be in a smaller body to be confident to you want to be confident. What does that look like in terms of what does a confident person do? How do you feel more confident? Right. As you think about people like, well, if I if I want to start to appreciate or love my body, then I need to lose weight. Or we could focus on how can you start to appreciate the body that you're in now? And you don't even have to think about loving your body like that's so far down the line. And might not even be a place that you even want to get to, right? Can we talk about appreciating your body, respecting your body, and just starting to appreciate for what it is right now, what it allows you to do and start there because it's, like I said, it's this like blanket, blanket thing that we've been taught. You go to the doctor and something's wrong, lose weight, right? Like the the stories I've been told over and over and over again, where it's like, you need to lose weight. And it's like, hmm. Or let me focus on the thing that's actually going to help me get the result that I want. And I think that that two people are also afraid to set goals when they're in intuitive eating because, well, that diet culture is me setting a goal of how many times I want to move a week or whatever. Any type of goal that you can think of, aside from a weight loss goal, obviously. Goals aren't diet culture. Sometimes they can be. But from an intuitive eating perspective, when you set goals, you you blend like it's because this is where I want to be, or this is the type of person that I want to be, or this is how I want my relationship with food to be, or whatever it is that you that you've set. You also are able to then listen to your body and be like, mm, my energy is super low today. Like I don't want to move, even though I set a goal to move today. I'm not going to, and I'm also not going to feel bad about it or change the way I eat because I'm not moving today. And so you get this blend of, yes, I can set goals. And I'm also able to listen to my body where is if it's a weight loss goal, you don't listen to your body, right? You're like, well, I said I was going to today, so now I have to, even though I'm super tired and my energy is from low or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky, it's tricky because of what we've been taught. And we're then now pivoting the focus onto what we actually want, who we actually want to be, what we actually want our relationship with food to be and movement and our bodies to doing the things that will get us there versus just focusing on this one route that we've been taught is the only and the best way to do it. And how would you recommend that listeners start to look into what they've been taught and start to parse through and be like, okay, what's mine and what's not? Yeah. Honestly, whenever you start something, the first thing is always awareness. So it's really helpful to write down the self-talk that comes up. If you're like, oh, do I actually want to believe that? Right? Because it's, let's say that a thought comes up about your weight or about whatever it is. The best thing to do is to write it all down because sometimes, oh, yeah, I think I say this or I think sometimes I say this. And if you can write down word for word what your self-talk was, then it's like, oh, I always have this phrase like when you, you know, in cartoons, they like open the door, all the shit falls down on them. Sometimes it can feel like that when you're like, oh, my God, look at all my self-talk. Like, it's so negative. I talk. I'm so mean to myself. And then you're able to like, oh, I remember my mom saying that about herself. And so now I say it to myself or I remember that my teacher told me this and now I still think it. And so you're able to go through these self-talk phrases that you hear yourself saying. I always like to start with the ones that you hear the most often and you're able to look back, okay, where did I learn this? Who taught me this? Right? Because you don't come out of the womb hating your body or thinking that the, the fat on your arm is bad, right? Or that cookies are bad. 
or that whatever cardio is better than this type you don't you just don't come out of the womb believing that you're taught everything and so you get to look back and be like who taught me this and then you also decide do I want to believe it right because you get to choose now and then you can think about okay so if this situation comes up or this someone says this to me and my thought is this negative self-talk phrase that I just wrote down what would I want to respond instead And every time you hear that thought, you have to instantly replace it. And it's not just once you replace the thought and you're like, okay, well, I want to say this instead that the thought just goes away. Obviously, it's not like that. It's a constant repeating because you weren't just taught that cookies are bad once and you're like, yeah, that's true. You are taught it over and over and over again. You heard your mom say that about herself over and over and over again until you believed it to be true. And so it's the same thing with reframing it is that you have to replace it every time that it comes up, or at least as often as you can, right? It's, it's a lot of mental work. And sometimes that's exhausting in itself, but working to replace it. And sometimes it's helpful to have it like in your notes section of your phone and have these top 10 that you say the most and what you want to replace it with. So that even if your the thought comes up 10 minutes later, you're like, ooh, I did hear that. Let me go back and see what I wrote so that I can replace it now. You don't have to always do it right on the spot, right? learning it's it's not your fault it's not your fault that you don't like x y and z part of your body it's not your fault that you think cookies and cheese it's are bad you were taught that but it is now your responsibility to change it you are the only one that can change it right i can tell you so much information you could take and do everything i just told you to do but you have to do it right and that's that's where okay it takes work and it takes time which i think is a really hard part about intuitive eating that i try to talk about as often as i can but I also don't want to scourge people, but it is hard, right? You're reprogramming everything you've been taught. And at the same time, you're like swimming upstream because you're working in a place that's told us to constantly lose weight and say all these negative things about ourselves, but you're trying to push up against it. So yes, there's a big community of us on social, on, you know, wherever, but you're sometimes it can still feel like you're alone when you're swimming upstream. So Yeah, those steps for sure. And we talk about those in like in the mindful method and and everything that I teach, but also to find a community of people that you can talk to because sometimes when I'm like, it's not just you. I promise you other people still think that you are not the only one in the world who doesn't like their stomach. Other, Other people do. Other people tell me that they don't. And when you're in the group and you hear someone else's story about, oh, I do this with food and you're like, oh, wait, I do that too. Diet culture wants you to feel isolated, like you're the only one that has these problems. But when you come in together as a group, whether it's on TikTok or whether it's in a group coaching program, whatever it ends up being, or on a retreat, whatever, you get to see a piece of your story in someone else's. And you get to not only support them, but they get to support you. And it's not just like me being a supporter. It's like everyone gets to support each other, which I think is the most beautiful thing and something that we don't get all the time, especially with intuitive eating. You might be the only one in your group of friends or in your family who wants to eat and live and move and think this way. And so when you have us like on the other side, give you a big hug when you come back from those family gatherings or when going out with your friends who are only talking about the diets that they're on. That's also a huge part of it. In addition to like, obviously all the steps and all the tools and all the like things that we do, having that community of people is, it's a game changer for real. Yeah, for sure. I really resonate with that. I think having a group also takes away a little bit of that shame piece. And the shame piece is what keeps you in this cycle of feeling so stuck and so alone, like you were saying, because you think, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I feel like this? I'm the only one that does this. There must be something wrong with me. I struggled with an eating disorder and I went through an outpatient recovery program. And I didn't tell anyone when I was doing the program at first. And I remember them telling me, they were like, JC, if you're able to talk about it and tell people about it, you will have a much faster recovery than if you act as if it's this shameful, unspoken part of you that you just like have to put away in a closet and never talk about. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Sure. And then when I actually started to do that, it did make a huge difference because you you start to release some of that shame and that moral value, which is something I also hear you talk a lot about because when we're in this state, when we're assigning this good versus bad on everything that we're doing, whether it be what we're eating or our actions or our movement, everything is, this is good, this is bad. Inherently, these things aren't good or bad. So how do you start to go about teaching people to remove this moral assignment that we've put on things that have no actual moral value? 
Totally. It's so big and there's so many ways to go down it. And if you've seen like any of my TikToks, like, you know, that like any person who's ever like, I ate past the point of comfortable fullness. Oh my God, blah, blah, blah. I did this wrong. I'm never going to be able to do it again. The first thing I will always tell you is that you didn't do anything wrong, mm. right? We put so much of the shame and guilt that we've done something bad on ourselves. It's like, wait, but you were taught that eating a cookie every day is bad, right? And it's also on the other side, right? Eating a salad isn't good. It doesn't make you a better person. And eating a cookie doesn't make you a bad person. And we we make up these little rules. And so so food specifically, we talk a lot about working through your forbidden foods. And it's the same thing with the negative self-talk, right? You can make a huge list of all the foods that you've been taught are bad or you think are bad. And you can even sometimes put rules in there too. Pizza might not be bad. I put in air quotes. But maybe, but you only allow yourself to have it on the weekend. So maybe it's bad Sunday through Thursday, but it's good or okay Friday, Saturday. And same thing understanding you could pick two foods that you want to work through. Pick one food, the food that feels relatively the easiest. And none of them are going to be easy, but you'll have foods that feel like you're Mount Everest and foods that feel like, okay, I think I could handle this. And I guess the same thing. You start, who taught me that this food was bad? Where did I learn that this food was bad? And then you go through, right? What are my rules with this food? And how can I start to break them? So let's go with the pizza thing, right? It's Pizza is a food that's bad. And you say, you realize that your rules are I only eat it on the weekends. And okay, how could, what's a step towards breaking that rule, right? If the ultimate goal is that you want to be able to have pizza whenever you want it, doesn't matter the day, the time, et cetera, we're not going to, that's not the first step. The first step would be, okay, if it's good on the weekend and bad on the weekday, maybe we eat pizza during the week. And if ordering pizza during the weekday feels too far, then it's like, maybe you either get a frozen pizza, or maybe you make a pizza from scratch and you start there and then you can kind of work yourself up. And that's like super specific towards food, but it's really the catching yourself and same like the amount of journaling prompts that everyone that either watches my TikTok or is in like the mindful method does is wild because again, it's writing it all down. You're able to see it because in your head, your brain could be like, oh, it's not that bad. So what? You don't allow cookies in the house. Doesn't matter. But then when you write it down and you're like, oh, I believe all this stuff about cookies or I, I say all this negative stuff to myself when I eat a cookie, then you're like that. Maybe that is a problem. Maybe that I don't want to talk to myself like that. And we can kind of go back to what what where I learned the cookies were about and kind of work from there. So it, it's all really this like big awareness and just giving yourself the can I open my eyes a little bit bigger and open my ears to hear what my inner voice is saying about everything. So sometimes it's helpful to narrow down and focus on like any negative self-talk, any foods that I think are bad, any rules that I have around movement, things like that. If you like, you're like, okay, well, I'm listening to everything, but I also have to work and go to school and do all the other things. Just giving yourself like a week or two to not feel like you have to change anything, but just to be aware of it and to understand what is going on now, right? Because we can't change it if we don't know what's going on. And it, we can do a better job of changing it if we know exactly what your inner voice is saying about what is good and what is bad. And I always like to talk about that middle area as like this wonderful rainbow place where you get to exist instead of one or the other, right? Which is, if we go a little bit deeper into like the voices of diet culture, like that's a food police. Like your judge and your jury. That's like, are you good or are you bad? Did you do this wrong or are you right? It's always this or that. There's never any room for it to just be okay and for you to learn from it, which is the biggest thing because it when you think about something being good or bad, you're never learning from something. If eating past the point of comfortable fullness is bad, then you're always afraid to do it or you're always going to talk shit about yourself when you do it. You're never going to understand. It's because someone said this or I, I'm really good at listening to my body and I pay really close attention when I'm at home. But as soon as I go out to a restaurant, I eat past the point of comfortable fullness. You, you don't get to look into that stuff if it's just good or bad, right? And so when it's in that rainbow area, you're able to be like, oh, it's, it's when I'm at a restaurant, specifically an Italian restaurant, where I have the hardest time listening to my fullness cues. But when I'm at home, I can, I'm, I'm pretty good at it, right? I listen, I listen pretty well. And so the, when you're open to that in-between rainbow area, it doesn't become a you did something wrong and you did something right. It becomes a, can I learn from this? when something doesn't go how you thought it would, right? When you eat past the point of comfortableness and you're like, yeah, dang it. Like I went too far or I went way too far from an intuitive eating lens. You're able to look back and be like, well, why? And it's not to say that you have to look back 
every time. Again, tedious, overwhelming. But when you do have the mental capacity to look back and be like, oh, it's maybe because of this, then you're able to better prepare for next time. Be like, okay, next time that someone says this or I'm at an Italian restaurant, I'm going to do this and let's see how it goes. And you get to experiment and you get to you get to try things and some things don't work and some things will work. And the, the best part about it is it just ends up being your life, right? You're not on the wagon or off the wagon. You just live and you get to learn from it all, which is kind of the beauty of it. And you don't do anything wrong. You just learn. And it sometimes can feel like, well, like that's a lot, <laughs> which is why it's helpful to, you know, have have community or have guidance to go through it because it, it's a lot of stuff. But it's when you can tune in and start that moment, you start to understand your body and start to listen to it and understand and appreciate your body, it's like a little taste of what could be a year or two years or five years from now, which is huge. Yeah, I want to completely echo what you said that it is a lot, but it's so worth it. When I first started my outpatient program, our first assignment was write your perfect day in recovery. And you write this assignment of what a day looks like in recovery for you. And at that point, like you literally have no idea because you've just been so embedded in this bullshit for so long that like your inner talk is shot. You have so many food rules. You're inundated with diet culture. So you just you like IDA on this perfect day in recovery that's still probably laden with diet culture. And then you go through the whole program. And then the last day, the last assignment is write your perfect day in recovery. And you write it again. And at that point, you're a different person. And you write the assignment. You don't look back at the first one. I completely forgot what I wrote. And then we spent the last session and she was like, okay, read them to me. Read the first one and then read the second one. And I was like, holy shit, this is wild. I could not even fathom what it was like to have this freedom, to have this headspace, to have this experience. And yes, it took a long time. It took so much work to sit there and reprogram all of the negative talk to like unlearn all of the diet culture nonsense that was in your head for so many years. But it starts to make a slow, gradual shift. Like I remember when I first started reprogramming these negative thoughts and I would have a negative thought, I would do what you said. And I'd be like, oh, this is fucking, I don't want to do this. Like, And I'd be like, this is not working. I was lying to myself. Like I would be like, I don't like the way that my body looks. And then I'd be like, just kidding. Love you. Like, you look great. And I'd be like, no. And I'd just do that even if I didn't believe it. And it was like laughable at a certain point. And it wouldn't stick. It did not stick for so long. And then I just got to a certain point, I remember, where I'm like, I'm so fucking tired of being at war with myself every single day. I absolutely just cannot do this anymore. It's like completely taking over my actual personality, what I care about, what actually makes me happy, my relationships. And I was just like, I just need to full on commit to this. And slowly, actually, I did start to believe the things. The things that I was telling myself did start to replace the negative thoughts. And now I'm at a place being in recovery, like my default is these thoughts. And I can totally resonate to anyone listening to this being like, I can't fathom that being the case. I've always been negative. I'm always going to be negative. There's no alternative because that's how I felt coming to you from this place. It is actually crazy. The difference that my default to myself is so gentle. That police that you're talking about and that jury and that inner authoritative mean mom figure is just like nowhere to be found. I feel so compassionate and gentle towards myself. And there are days where I eat past fullness or do things that feel uncomfortable. And I'm just like, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. Like you just start to have such a more rational relationship to food and to your body and to movement and it gives you so much space to like actually do the shit that you care about yes it's like kindness and I think that people always think too oh I coach intuitive eating that must mean that I never eat past the point of comfortable fullness or I never say anything negative about myself or I never or I always know how to listen to my hunger and fullness right like I never get to a one and it's like no that's not true Right. So I always try to post as much as I can when like I eat past the point of control fullness or I didn't plan my day well. And now I'm at a one and I like want to eat everything in the pantry. What's different is that as an intuitive eater, your response to it isn't negative. Your response to it is it like you eat past the point of control fullness and you're not like, I'm never going to get it right. Or yeah. you're so bad. I can't believe you did this again. Or you're done. Like just go back on a diet for counting your calories like you're never going to get it. No, the response now is it's okay. 
And everyone who's thinking like, well, it's okay. Like, it's not okay. But you need to be told that it's okay, that you didn't do anything wrong. Because the second you think that you did it wrong or that it's something to be embarrassed about or shameful for, then it becomes this huge deal. Yeah. Right. And it's like eating past the point of control. Yeah. We want to do it all the time. No. But when it's such a bad thing, then you take away from you listening to your body. You take away from you understanding why it happened. I get so many messages of like, okay, so I'm still reaching for uh, all this food. And but I give myself food freedom. What what's going on? And it's okay. Well, how long has it been? One week. Right. <laughs> it, it takes time, which is it's tough. It takes time to build the kindness to yourself. So when you do eat past the point of comfortable fullness, you aren't pissed. You might be a little frustrated. I get frustrated. But then you have the ultimate kindness to be like, it's OK. And that doesn't mean that tomorrow we're not eating or that we're skipping breakfast because we ate past the point of comfortable fullness today. You're able to then be like, OK, no, I still get to listen to my body. If I have the mental capacity, I'll look back and understand what happened or why that that kindness, that response that comes from practice, that's something that like you can't re replace, like the kindness that you build to yourself. And again, it's not like you're going to be kind every day, right? There's days where you might be mean or have a negative self-talk. But again, it's how you respond to that and how you change it, which is a big differentiator from a dieter versus an intuitive eater. And a dieter doesn't even mean you're on a diet. A dieter could just in general, like you have rules or you have disordered eating or eating disorder. And it's that kindness that you build that you're talking about that you have now that's so different that makes the relationship that you have with food so much more enjoyable because yeah. before it's all you think about. Like I just think about the exercise you did and it's like, I obviously don't know what you wrote. What I think about when my relationship with food was disordered, it's all I think about was food. It's all yeah. I thought about 24 seven, whether it was good or it was bad, if it was maybe lose weight or gain weight, if I ate too many calories, if what I was going to eat for dinner, do I need to work out again before it? Like it's it's all you think about when we talk about like girl mouth, which is a huge trend. Right <laughs> it was like disordered eating math. And yeah. I would math myself into, OK, well, when I go out to get this pizza for dinner, that's acceptable because I did X, Y and Z during the day. And then when you move through a recovery process or when you work through intuitive eating and your relationship with food and movement in your body, the space you have to actually live is so wide and you instead of going to dinner or going over to a friend's house this just happened to me too and someone in the mindful method a couple of times ago talked about this and they were like you go to a friend's house and there'd be like a bunch of snacks on the table or like a charcuterie board or whatever and i'd be sitting there and i'd be thinking about whether or not i should have another thing of cheese or if what i had was too much and i totally missed the conversation that my friends were having but when you you build a positive relationship with food you can make the decision i'm gonna have this cheese and blah, 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 whatever and then actually talk to your friends and build um, relationships with your friends versus wondering whether or not having another slice of cheese or this cracker is going to be good or bad. That example is so small, but it's examples like that, that when you build a positive relationship with food and you work on the voices of an intuitive eater, how you talk to yourself, it's those little changes that add up. You don't all of a sudden be like, oh my God, I'm an intuitive eater. You look back and you're like, oh, I don't do that anymore. I am able to have a conversation with my friends. I am able to set boundaries when my mom is like, you're having another slice. It's those little things that build up over time that you're able to look back and be like, that's amazing. And that that's the, that's the best part. Yeah, it's not even about intuitive eating. It's about literally getting your entire life back. I did the same exact thing that you're talking about where literally all I thought about was food, exercise, counting all day, math. I was a mathematician. Like I literally would do that the entire day. I wouldn't think about anything else. And right now I'm living my actual dream life. Like I've never been happier in my life. And I don't think about food at all. And it's crazy to think I thought that being thinner and by focusing on this control and food and movement was going to be the key to what made me happy. Like you were talking about, that's the fallacy that everyone believes. Oh, if I just figure it out and lose weight, I'll be happy. But it's actually not about that at all. Like when you actually figure out how to stop doing that, that's when you can unlock a whole new life, basically. I, I also wanted to ask, so what if you are working on a better relationship with your body and you're able to start to see people in your life that have not so great relationships with their bodies because you're watching them, you're witnessing them comment on other people's bodies, comment on their own bodies, comment on their eating habits. Like they know, they're like, I know I don't love myself or I know I don't love my body, but they don't want to change it. 
And so you're in this person's environment and let's say it's like a family member or like a really close friend. What do you do? Because clearly like you're doing the work, you're establishing that safety and you're around someone that that isn't willing to. And it might be potentially difficult to kind of live in that. You don't want to. Everybody has their agency autonomy. But how do you manage that kind of situation? Totally. And I think that most people who are working towards building a positive relationship with food movement, their body will experience this 1000 percent. And I think it, it to me, it just depends on how well how well you know that person, how important that person is to you, because there's a couple different ways you can kind of go about it. If it's someone that is like not family, not friends, it could be a coworker or someone that not not important to you, but they're not like family or friends that you like actively choose to hang out with all the time. It could be a stranger. It could be whatever. And it, this is like the lower level of invested you are into this person is like one, ignore it. Don't comment back. Just do your best. Put a bubble around yourself and don't let their comment, whether it's to you or just around you, infiltrate that bubble or that like brick wall that you want to put up as it starts to get higher. And in that situation, like that's a monitor yourself talk, remove yourself from the situation kind of thing. Like you're you're not going to change them, right? Like they're so low on your priority list that like it's not worth it for you to go through all the effort to put yourself in a vulnerable situation to talk to them, blah, 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 to try to change them because maybe they're not going to. And also they're lower on your list of people that are important to you. So as you get higher up on this list of how important people are to you, how much time you spend with them, then that's where you're going to start to talk about it. You're going to start to set boundaries, whether that's I, I'm going to decrease the time that I spend with this person because I know that the way they talk about themselves or the way they talk to other people, like that negatively impacts me. So you could start to decrease your time with them. Again, depends on your relationship with them, how much you like them, et cetera. If it's someone that you spend a lot of time with or it's family and you spend a lot of time with them or friends. Then you start to think about, okay, I love this person, but the way that they talk about food or movement or their bodies, or they talk about my body is impacting me. And right now you're like you listening, like you're the most important thing. So that means that you need to set boundaries and be like, Hey mom, when you say this about your body, it makes me think this. And I know that that's not your fault, right? That's how I'm responding to it. And a key in these conversations is to never make the person feel like they're doing something wrong. They will get defensive so fast or they'll be like, fine, I'll never talk about this again around you. I'll never talk about this to you, right? That's happened to me. And so you you come at it, which again, it, it takes a lot of patience and kindness to be like, hey, mom or hey, friend or whoever, when you say this about yourself, it makes me think this about myself. And I'm really working actively to build a positive relationship with my body or with and I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't say those things around me. Or if someone's commenting on your body or your food, I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't comment on the food that I'm eating because it makes me think this or it does. This is how I respond to it. And that's not your fault. And you didn't know that. But that's why I wanted to bring it up because you're really important to me. I like spending time with you. I love you. And here's what I'm doing with myself. And when you say those things, this is how I respond. And when you tell that person, like, ideally, you hope that they respond like, oh, my God, like, I had no idea. Like, I'll, I'm going to work on it, whatever. Even if that person responds like that, you're still going to have to remind them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because, again, they're not just going to be like, oh, yeah, let me just change my self-talk so that I don't impact you. Right. They have to go through that now and be like, oh, why do I say that about myself? Like, hopefully that sparks something with them. Sometimes it won't, though. And they might not have a positive reaction to what you've said. And. That doesn't mean that you just shut it down. That means maybe you try a different approach or you have a conversation one-on-one -on -one versus in a group or whatever. But it's it's standing up for yourself and deciding what you need, what's important to you, what's going to help you, the community, to build this relationship with you. Because we we talk like the people that we surround ourselves with, right? We We tend to think the same things. Or when someone says this about their body, then we're like, oh, should I also be thinking that about my body? So when you think about the people that are closest to you, who you spend your time with, you want to be able to set your boundaries and be able to have like I still do that with my friends and my family. If they say something about themselves, people don't tend to say it to me anymore. And also, again, I exist in a small body. People don't tend to comment on my weight. But for someone who doesn't live in a small body, like that's much it's harder. Right. It doesn't mean that mine isn't hard. It's just that to live in a body that's bigger is harder because of the weight stigma, because of all these things that we've been taught and having those conversations 
regardless of the size body you're in, like they're always hard. You just you, you get to have them and decide who is important enough to me that I want to set have these vulnerable conversations with because you've got to trust them. Like these food is so personal that it's easy to get defensive and you want to be able to have the conversations with these people and feel safe that they are going to at least hear what you're saying. They might not respond well to it, but, you know, that you want to feel safe when you have those conversations, too. It's also so much more joyful when the people that you're around aren't constantly talking about dieting and food and their bodies. Like my friends never, ever, ever mention that. And they will just actually talk about real things, which is amazing. But I've definitely been in spaces and have had past friendships where all they do is talk about what workouts they're doing and what they've eaten and how their body looks. And I'm like, this is not fun to be around. Like no one is having a good time. So when you start to realize what are the topics of conversations that your friends are talking a lot about, I don't know, it's just a little audit that is interesting to do because I definitely reprioritized who I hang out with and spend less time. But then there's also people like family that it is really hard and you do need to have those harder conversations with. So it's helpful to have that strategy that you mentioned. You just had a wedding recently, which you looked like the most joyful bride in the entire world. I've never seen someone so happy at their wedding. You were just like laughing in all the photos, which is absolutely amazing. Did you feel pressure going into your wedding? Like I know the diet culture around weddings is out of control. I have so many friends that are struggling with it. And I know it's just the craziest pressure that is put on people before their weddings. Like, how did you deal with that? It's a good question. And I think that one, because again, because of the size of my body, people weren't like, are you going to lose any weight for your wedding? Like, are you doing this? You know, but you see it everywhere. It doesn't mean that the thoughts didn't go through my head. Like there were still thoughts of, oh, I should probably just do this workout weddings in two weeks. I'd be like, wait, it's a day. It's one day. Mm -hmm. And same like with, with workouts, with food, the thoughts would come in. But again, I wasn't mad that the thoughts were coming in. Because of the the wedding industry, because of diet culture, like the thoughts were bound to come in at some point. But it's again how I respond to them, how we respond to them that makes all the difference. Whereas, okay, yeah, I am craving pizza two days before the wedding. Like it's okay, right? The thought could be like, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. But then me to be like, I want pizza. It's okay if I start restricting pizza now, and when I when I have it again, like the craving is going to be out of control. And so, giving myself like, I'm not changing anything. Like, I didn't change anything from before I got engaged to my wedding. And I haven't changed anything now. And I think I'm also really lucky in that, that though my relationship with food and movement and my body and how I talk to myself now, it like, this is when I got married. Because if I had gotten married five years ago, would have been a wildly different. I probably would not have mm. looked as joyful on my wedding. Like, even mm. just like relationship with like, with dancing and like feeling free. I was talking to my husband and I was like, I don't think I talked to a single person at our wedding. And he goes, you were jumping up and down for three hours. Like you didn't talk that you never left the dance floor. And I was like, oh yeah, but that's what I wanted, right? I wanted to be able to enjoy it and experience it. And I also sat with my friends and my family, like whenever anyone asked about the wedding, I was never talking about food or exercise or movement or anything so I think it's I honestly kind of like put myself in a bubble from wedding stuff like I didn't watch any wedding content but like I got this wedding planning book and there was a whole chapter dedicated to movement and it was like you need to be doing this stuff to get toned arm and I was like what a bunch of crap like mm -hmm. this the fact that this is in we're talking about planning an event where it is supposed to like you hope it's an extremely joyful time and full of love and like all your your best people are there. Like, why does it matter how what like the circumference of your arm is? Right. When I look back at the pictures, I, it makes me so freaking happy that you guys can see it who weren't there, that it, it felt like the most joyful day of my life. And it looked like that. And and again, it's not everyone's like, oh, you look beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But I again, I think about it, I'm like, I'm in a, I'm in a smaller body like what how are people feeling who exist in larger bodies on their wedding who are asked or who are nervous about going to get their wedding dress who are nervous about going to a shop that might not have a dress that fits them right like the added stress that that brings with a wedding is it makes me so sad and so sick to my stomach that other people won't get to have the same experiences I had because of the size of their body right like the dresses that I went to go try I was never worried that there was going to be a dress that came. I remember I went to a specific store 
And I, I barely fit in the sample dress that they had. And I asked her, I was like, what do you guys, what do you do? Like, how do you allow people in other size bodies to come into the store? And they were just like, well, we just opened like it's a sample where we're getting more. And I was just kind of like, the experience is different. I, I, I don't want it to be, but the experience for someone who, I know I'm taking this into a different direction than the question you asked, but experience <laughs> for someone who exists in a larger body is, is different. I can't obviously say that from personal experience, but I have to imagine that the questions that other people get about, are you going to lose weight? Oh my gosh, what wedding diet are you on? Encouraging them to do juice cleanses or whatever, you know, right before their wedding and making their looks and how much they weigh more important than the joy and the love that they feel on that day. It's blown out of proportion, the whole thing. I mean, I freaking loved it, but it's so, there's so much pressure on one day. One mm. day, you know? And yeah, sorry, I'm going on 700 tangents, but it's <laughs> one, it was the most beautiful day of my life. And like things went wrong, but ended up working out in our best favor. But then I stepped out of my bubble of how wonderful it was into other people's experiences of the process from getting engaged to getting married. And the idea that you need to look like a totally different person you know, to to get married at all in the first place and to be like, well, I can't get married in this body. I have to get married in another body. You know, the experiences are different. And one needs to be talked about, which is I keep talking about it. Two is, again, I can't, it's not my experience, but I can only, from the stories I've heard and, you know, the people who talk to me about it. Yeah, so my, I found myself in a little bubble and told people not to mm. talk to me about, it, about <laughs> my weight and what I was eating. But I've also set those precedences a long time ago. No one does that to me in general. So they knew that wedding wise, I still wasn't going to talk about what I was eating or how I was moving my body. I've set those boundaries long before this. Hey, I love that. I love your little pre-wedding bubble. It definitely works. Last question. What are three, Sarah, non-negotiables that you do that help you stay happy, joyful, mentally sane? Because <laughs> it's hard. It's obviously yeah. hard work. It's not easy. I appreciate when you say in your videos, oh, I have these thoughts also still, even after all these works. So what are just personal Sarah things that are very meaningful to you that you keep yeah. up with? Okay. Personal things. One is that I set Zoom calls with my friends. I have like bi-weekly calls with a lot of my friends who don't live here in Miami because otherwise I don't talk to them. We can have the best intentions, but we're like, oh yeah, I'll call you tomorrow. I promise. And it, it's not a bad thing that doesn't happen. It just life gets in the way. So I have calls with my friends. And I make time, make sure that I spend time with my friends in real life here, but also my friends that don't live here because I have friends from so many different areas of my life, whether it's from childhood or from teaching yoga or from intuitive eating or just from people that I became friends with here. Like to have the different paths that I found people is really helpful because all of my friends, I feel comfortable talking about anything. So like when my friends are like, how are you? I'm not, I'm never just good. It's I, I'm this and here's why. And I and I think that that's it's so beautiful because it it gives me and the friend that I'm talking to both the opportunities to be like, here's actually what's going on because we know that the other person cares. And so I make time for that because I without them, I go down in spirals, which is huge for me to have to have those people. This, again, kind of a weird thing, but I have a latte every morning. Because one, I love them. And two, I look forward to it. It gets me out of bed. I'm already now excited to go to bed to wake up to have my latte tomorrow morning. <laughs> it's just so good. And part of me is maybe I should say journaling. But I go in and out of waves with journaling. And I, I love to do it. But depending on the season of life that I'm in, sometimes I make time for it, sometimes I don't. But my latte is a huge one because one, starts my day off great. Two, I never used to allow myself to have a latte when I was counting calories. I would only mm -hmm. have black coffee or cold brew, and I would always type it in my stomach. A splash. Don't put a lot in because I was terrified of those calories. And so every time I have a latte, when I think about it, it's a little like a little woohoo. You're still mm -hmm. like kicking it, you know, like you're still punching diet culture in the stomach and continuing to work on it. And so not only is it like tastes delicious, starts made up right, but it's also a nice reminder that you're, you're, you still got it. You're, you have changed so much from your relationship with food from what it used to be. The third thing is my, my gut is to say some sort of movement. What's cool is that my answer probably would have been the same when I was counting calories or when I was in diet culture, but the reason why would have been different. And my reason now is that my movement doesn't, isn't the same every day 
because I it usually changes with how I'm feeling, whether I train my handstands or I do mobility or I walk, I mean, I walk my dog every day, obviously. But the length is different every day. The amount of energy I put into it's different every day. Sometimes it is only walking my dog. Sometimes it is more specific of what I want to do. Sometimes it's just the movement that I do demoing when I teach yoga in, in Miami. And so just being able to connect to my body for however long, whether it's five minutes or an hour or however long, is such a nice reminder. Just one, look what your body can do. Look how cool she is. And even if it's not like where I want to be or range of motion that I'm working on is where I want to be or my hands hands are where I want to be, you still get to be like, in, in this moment today, look at what she can do. And to me, that's really powerful because I never used to listen. I never used to listen to what my body wanted to do. I was like going to high intensity cardio workouts or lifting really heavy and running away from my emotions. So I didn't know how to cope with them and not listening, just plowing through regardless of what. And I would get to the weekend so exhausted. So movement, but with an asterisk of with the asterisk of based on whatever my body's telling me that it wants to do. So, yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This was so amazing. I am so, so, so happy. I've been looking forward to this forever. We will link everything that you're doing down below. For anyone listening that's not following you already, you absolutely must follow Sarah. She is the best person to follow on social media. And we'll tell you that she's proud of you every single day, which is just we all need to hear it. Sarah, what are you excited about that you want to tell people about? What's going on? Where can they find you? The biggest thing that like I'm most excited for right now is the Mindful Method is starting in November and it's my like signature 13 week group coaching program. And there's never like a best time to start your like not even journey, but just start breaking free of diet culture and building a positive relationship with food. But if there would be one and I like to time when they start around when diet culture is super loud. Joining the Mindful Method this year in November means that last holiday season was the last holiday season that like you were full of die culture, right? That like you were listening to the messages, you had the negative self-talk, you were doing all these things. This is the year that it changes. And you have this wild support for these 13 weeks that goes through Thanksgiving, whatever holidays you celebrate in December, New Year's, January, when every diet company or any wellness company is talking about New Year's resolutions and gyms are packed and everyone's talking about, in quotes, being healthy. And I just wish that I had had this group when I was trying to figure out how to stop counting calories and how to stop Mm -hmm. with all the rules that I had, especially during a time like this, when it the messages are everywhere you look. Everyone is talking about how bad they were because they ate these treats at the holiday party last night. And to have a group that you can come back to and ask your questions or say, this is what happened at this party last night. Can we talk about it? Or, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so proud because this went, you know? So that's like the biggest thing happening like at the end of the year. But yeah, like that, I'm, I can't, I'm so excited for it to start. People are already signing up, which is great. And I'm pumped. Hey, amazing. That's so exciting. We'll link places to find you down below so everyone can check you out. But thank you so, so much again. We loved having you and we will talk to you again soon. Thank Thank you you so much.